I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll discuss inflation as it relates to trade. Plus, we'll talk nearshoring and the great Mexican beer crisis. Trade Guys, break it all down right now. Trade Guys, we're back from our July 4th celebration slumber. We took the week off, but we're back. We were not slumbering, however. No? Some of, I don't know about you, but some of us were busy working. The trade guys never rest. Trade guys That's never rest. Right. Okay. Do There's we know always it? a trade crisis somewhere. It's like <laughs> it's 5 o'clock somewhere, Andrew. It's... There's always a trade problem. There's always a trade problem. Apparently, these days, there's always an inflation problem, too. And we can talk about that in the context of these China tariffs that President Biden appears to be mulling fairly seriously. The removal of tariffs on some Chinese goods. Is that likely to happen? And what are the options here? And how does that relate to the highest inflation in 40 years? Well, for the wonks who follow the China tariffs. My column this week is on that subject. So check out our website and, and you can see it. I think the interesting thing about the issue is that the options the president has really haven't changed much since last September. When they started talking about this, they've seemed to be so far incapable of making a decision. And I can sort of see that because there aren't any clear good ones from their perspective, both politically good and economically good. But the inflation argument seems to have accelerated the process and pushed them to thinking they really need to make a decision and get this thing off the table. Most of the discussion from economists has been that even if you get rid of all the tariffs, all the China tariffs, it won't make that much difference on inflation. There have been at least three studies done on that question. And the studies have varied in terms of the inflationary impact, reducing inflation between 0.3 percentage points and I think one and a half percentage points. The high number is based on the assumption that the Chinese would eliminate the retaliatory tariffs as well. So that is why it's a higher number. The other number is more the U.S. number. When you're at 9.1, which is what we are as of today, 0.3 or 0.5 is not a big dent. It would have a positive impact, but that's only if he gets rid of all of them. And the betting is that they're only going to get rid of some of them. And the sum would be those that are consumer items, probably meaning items that show up in the consumer price index, but items that don't have any strategic or security implications. So think bicycles, think apparel, think other consumer things like that, which means probably nothing in the information and communications technology sector. Certainly nothing in steel and aluminum, which they've already ruled out, which are pursuant to a different statute anyway. So it's likely to be a, in terms of immediate effect, a very small package. Sounds like it will be accompanied by restarting an exclusion process so people that want to get other tariffs removed can come in and ask. You'll recall that ended with the Trump administration and Ambassador Tai put it back in for, I think, about 350 items, but not most of them. And there's pressure from Congress to restart. There's resistance from Ambassador Tai to restart. We'll see what the president decides. And then there's also projected likelihood that they'll initiate another investigation, a Section 301 investigation into 
Chinese unfair practices, which would be necessary as a legal predicate if they want to take some future act that has the political advantage of kicking the can because you get a year to do that. So you don't have to do anything right away. So I do think they'll make a decision. I think they'll make it fairly soon, probably when the president comes back from the Middle East and after he's talked to Xi Jinping. And then it'll be a fairly small package that won't have a big impact on inflation. Well, but hasn't there been a fairly heated debate about the degree to which such a removal of tariffs would reduce inflation or not? There's been a heated debate with the business community asserting strenuously that it would have a big impact on inflation. I can't find any economists that believe that. So the debate, I think, is between the lobbyists and the economists, not among economists. I don't know. Scott, have you read anything to the contrary? Well, no, I think that's right. And it's important to separate the China issue from the inflation issue. Bill is right on the China issue. One of the problems is we're working without a strategy, and that's gone from the last September. As you know, the trade guys got their start thanks to President Donald J. Trump. Tariff man. For, for all his many faults, he had a clear idea of what he was trying to do. He had a policy of reciprocity when it came to trade issues. Now, there were some weird ideas about uh, leverage that got laid on top, and we, we started treating trade agreements like real estate deals. And so it had its strange moments, but at least there was a bedrock principle of reciprocity. You could at least predict decision-making. The Biden administration, regrettably, has gotten stuck without much of a policy and without that sort of bedrock idea of what they're trying to accomplish with China. And as a result, they've been stuck for a while. So it's unclear what they're trying to achieve. It's unclear who's actually in charge. So the China thing is, I think Bill's right, and I hope it will sort itself out with a decision. In the meantime, on inflation, this probably won't fix it. Bill's right. This is not the whole story. It's mainly all the money we printed during COVID. It's a monetary policy issue first and foremost. But if I were facing elections in November, I'd be starting every morning's press conference with the three things I'm doing to lower inflation. Okay, I would be running for my life as a potential elected official facing the voters. Right, the things you're doing to lower inflation and lower gas prices. Yes, exactly. I and mean, that would be the start of every briefing because that is top of mind for constituents. And even if it's small, I think the reason the lobbyists are making the point they're making is it's something. I think politically, the administration needs something. They're not going to wait for the Federal Reserve Board to destroy demand and start a recession in order to get it through. And Bill's right, it will ameliorate at some point. But it's a problem right now. It's a political problem. And the lack of a China strategy compounds it. If there's any silver lining in today's news, it, it appears that there is was simultaneously news that wage increases have, been, have slowed down rather significantly which reduces the risk of a wage price spiral. Yes, which was the 70s. Which would be the worst position to be in. It makes it seem more likely that this is a demand spike, which will certainly lead the Fed, I think, to bump up interest rates by another three quarters of a percent. If we can avoid this, the kind of wage price spiral that, as you said, we had in the 70s, this may be an easier problem to lick. Uh, the other factor, I mean, I'm trying to put a positive spin on these things. The other factor, I think, is that Today's numbers uh, reflects big run up in energy prices in June, which has since subsided. You know, we're down, I think on, on average, aren't we? Down, we're down 18 cents a gallon below where we were. At I think it's even more than that. It's continuing to go down. I saw one projection which astonished me, which was projecting that by the end of the year, oil would be at $65 a barrel. Yesterday, Hallelujah. it was, I think, at 95. 
it had been above 100 again, but now it's it's down. So one of the biggest factors in the CPI may may be rationalizing. That certainly that that's true of commodities in general, Bill. You're right. The cycle commodities seem to have gotten ahead of themselves and are now going back to lower levels than in the past month or two. So we may get some relief, but I don't think it helps uh, politicians much. But we do continue to have these whack-a-mole supply crises. Right. The latest one's still not even over, apparently. Baby formula is still, there's still a shortage. We're still getting shipments from Europe to make up for our lack of supply. It's still going on, guys. Yes, the, uh, the, the Abbott plant just restarted. There's a lot of pantry and retail and wholesale inventory to fill. Listen, I have a very important question. Do you guys think that President Donald J. Trump knew that the trade guy's ratings were going to be so good when he launched his clear idea of a trade plan? <laughs> I'm I, sure that's why he did it. I, I like why, would he do it? why would there be any other reason? I mean, he's a guy who knows ratings, right? So like, he yes. had to know that his trade policy was going to create a hit show called The Trade Guys. Once he finally realizes he lost the election, maybe he'll restart The Apprentice and Scott, Scott and I can show up and uh, see how we do. He can fire us in person. How about that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. You're fired. <laughs> yeah. For right now, you're still employed. That's so correct. Let's, yes. let, let's, let's stay employed and let's talk about one of our favorite things, USMACA, USMCA. What's going on with the new North American Free Trade Agreement? There's also something that we know is the great Mexican beer crisis that's involved with this. What's happening? Yes, huge issue. Uh, there is a demand surge for beer in Mexico, and I feel kind of sorry for them. I'm not, this doesn't seem to be yet an American problem, although I'm sure... Uh, Mexico makes occur. some of the best beer in the world. What's the problem? Well, look... There was a big COVID problem because people stopped going out during COVID and draft beer sales plummeted and bottled and canned beer sales grew very rapid. That's why you couldn't find your caffeine-free Diet Coke every once in a while. So there was- Because we had a shortage of aluminum, right? Exactly. The shortage of aluminum cans. Same thing happened with glass bottles, which a lot of Mexican beer is still packed in glass bottles. It's, it's one of those things that, that, that there was an imbalance created by the- shutdowns, and an immediate switch from draft beer, sold kegs, to bottled or canned beer. That seems to be over, and now it's just a matter of demand is higher than they expected. So they're trying to keep up with that. It is a trade problem only that two of the ingredients in beer, hops, which are the spice of beer, and barley, which they malt and is one of the key starches in the, the mix that ferments, both of which are sort of cold weather or colder climate crops and tend to be imported most of the year to Mexico. Mexico does, I don't think they grow their own hops at all. Well, it's a small ingredient, but barley is also not grown in great quantities in Mexico. So there, there are some imports that affect it, but this appears to be just higher demand than estimated and, uh, and they're trying to catch up. Hey, Scott, you know, this doesn't sound like a, a, a trade problem. Great Mexican beer crisis sounds like a national security problem to me. Uh, the, I'm, sure, I'm sure the Mexican beer drinkers- For both us and them. <laughs> Well, but at least fortunately, it's a Mexican problem, not an American problem. So you can still get yours. Yeah, we, have our, yeah. we have enough problems of our own to go around. There has been concern in the aluminum industry, well, not in the industry, but in, amongst the, the people who make cans, that the aluminum tariffs have increased their costs significantly, which is going to add to the price of a can of beer. I don't think it's created shortages yet, but 
We should monitor this very closely and see. Probably make regular weekly purchases just to make sure, make sure everything's okay. Yeah, well, that's a good point. We should we should make sure everything's okay. You know, I guess this could mean good news for the American brewing industry if there isn't so much competition from Mexican brewing. And I could put in a plug right now. If you are ever find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, there is a very fine local beer called Paradise Park. It is excellent. Very light, crisp, delicious, great lager. It's a solid recommendation for an American-made product. Okay. That's right. Good to know. Getting back to the larger question, it's worth mentioning that the regularly scheduled trilateral meeting of the three countries was held last week in Vancouver. They take turns. And it was Canada's turn. And they, among other things, agreed to set up a committee to monitor problems as they develop. My reaction was sort of more happy talk. There is no shortage of problems. We're all mad at each other. You know, we're mad at the Canadians because of dairy and lumber. They're mad at us because of uh, Buy America, because of solar panels, where they won. Actually, that was one of the issues that was settled. We're all mad at Mexico because of its energy policy. Aside from the solar case, which was one where we lost in the USMCA dispute settlement process and respected the outcome, aside from that, most of these problems are still hanging out there. The summit produced a lot of happy talk about how much we're going to cooperate, but didn't produce a lot of concrete solutions. We're still arguing about lumber. We're still arguing about dairy. We're still arguing about energy. We're still arguing about GMOs in Mexico. So Bill makes a good point, and I would just add to it that there are parts of USMCA that are not aging well. The two I would point to is one, the rules on automobiles, because of the rapid change to battery electric vehicles, that the auto rules were negotiated based on internal combustion powertrains. And it's not obvious that's going to be an easy translation. Those rules will fit nicely. So I think there's work to do there. may not be at the top uh, political levels, but somebody's got to be thinking about that. I'm sure the industry is. The second is a lot of Buy America laying on by the Biden administration since USMCA was concluded. We're going to have to figure out what's when a North American product qualifies for Buy America and when it doesn't. And I expect a lot of fights on that. Those are really important points, especially the, the, the vehicle issue. I mean, this is kind of a classic case of people not looking far enough ahead. The rules were structured with combustion engine, uh, engines in mind, and the rules consist of content standards, which were de designed to demand more North American content in particular. And what we're learning is, as all of the companies, foreign and domestic, transition to electric vehicles, is if you're going to build giant battery packs, which really are the, the new guts of the automobile, a lot of the ingredients there simply can't meet the content standards mm -hmm. because we simply don't have the materials in Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. The big chunks are going to have to be imported one way or the other. And there's a real possibility that the content rules are going to get in the way of the very thing that, that Lighthizer uh, wanted to do, which was to promote more manufacturing here in the United States. Well, let's dig into the solar business for a second. This time, the United States has agreed to halt 201 tariffs on Canadian solar panels. Why were these tariffs there in the first place? And what does this new announcement resolve, if anything? Section 201 is uh, so-called safeguards provision of trade law, and it covers fairly traded products. So unlike anti-dumping, countervailing duty, where the subject is unfair trade, in the case of safeguards, so 201, it's fairly traded goods that are putting pressure on American industries. The request was granted the protection 
was granted to American solar panel manufacturers with the 201 uh, back in 2018 in the Trump administration. And then the President Biden chose to extend them for another four years, and they've just reversed that decision. So certainly those fairly traded products were a better value than American panels. American companies have now had a chance to adjust, whether they have or not. Certainly for the end users of the industry, if you want to install solar panels or you, you are an installer of solar panels for your customers, having the Canadian panels probably suits your, your business as well. Bill? The decision didn't reverse everything Biden did. It only reversed it with respect to Canada and presumably Mexico, although I don't think that we import a lot of solar panels from Mexico. And you, you notice that this was not run through the WTO. It was run through the USMCA dispute settlement mechanism as a violation of those rules. And in a way, it's a good sign. The U.S. decided not to fight this. The U.S. respected the panel decision and has gone ahead and changed the rules. This will benefit the Canadians. The Canadians noted that their panel exports to the U.S. declined 82% during the period you know, when the tariffs were in effect. So for them, it's significant. I think in, the, in terms of gross quantity of panel imports, I'm not sure how much Canada is compared to the big gorilla in the, or the big elephant in the room. That would be better, which is China. Although I think there, we'll probably be talking, I know we're going to be talking about this in the future because we're going to have a guest coming up in the next few weeks as a forced labor expert, which I'm really looking forward to. You'll recall we had a lot of discussion on, on the trade guys in May about solar panel imports and dumping duties and subsidies, the additional possible subsidies on sort of derivatives duties on uh, panels from Vietnam, Malaysia, Thailand, and the fourth country that I'm not remembering on offhand, on the basis that, that it really, they really were Chinese panels that were coming in from these other countries. I think what we may discover, I mean, however, that, that was a complicated issue for the president who ultimately ended up deciding not to interfere with the investigation, but announced sort of preemptively that if the investigation resulted in duties on those countries, he was going to suspend those duties. That may all end up being moot because the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act says that if you've got stuff from Xinjiang in your supply chain, you can't get it in the U.S. And the burden is on you to prove that you're innocent. It's not on the government to prove you're guilty. And a lot of the polysilicon that's in these panels comes from Xinjiang province. So we may find that Despite all this huge argument in May and April and May about tariffs, none of that may matter. And we may end up finding Chinese panels are excluded uh, because of the forced labor provisions and, and for that reason only. So the panel installers probably need to do what they should have done a year ago, which is to you know, ramp up alternative sources of supply outside of China. Let's talk about nearshoring. There's been a lot of news recently about it, nearshoring and friendshoring trends. Are companies actually starting to nearshore supply chains? I, I think it's important to, to start with the point that most of these news stories begin with the, the notion that, that somehow nothing gets made in the United States. I would just start with the observation that United States industrial production in the most recent year on record was $1.8 trillion. That's larger than Japan, larger than Germany. In fact, it's only China has a larger total industrial output at $2 trillion. So we're still making a lot of stuff. We make a lot of stuff. We've always made a lot of stuff. Now, we make stuff that suits our sophisticated, well-educated, high-technology society. So it's the high-skill, high-technology jobs that are here 
And there are fewer of them than there were when we were a less technologically sophisticated country. But be that as it may, we do make a lot of stuff. And there have been a lot of reasons to explore shorter supply chains. This began well before COVID as Chinese labor costs continued to grow up. China was the place where you found very reasonable labor and you could do it at scale. And that's been slipping away for some time now. So China's cost advantage has been declining versus both other, other East and South Asia markets and versus developed markets. Now, with higher energy prices, distance is a, is a bigger cost than it used to be. If you think about a barrel of oil, transport fuels come from diesel fuel, which all comes out of that barrel of oil. When you go from $50 to $100 a barrel, your transport is roughly twice as expensive, where the fuel required to transport your goods are more expensive. There's also, it's clearly a complexity premium these days as borders have gotten thicker, as containers have taken longer to arrive. So there's a lot of pressure on shortening supply chains, reducing complexity. At the same time, I think a lot of it has to do with there are long timelines in qualifying new suppliers. So it's probably more complicated than it appears. Separately, semiconductors, the IT chip fabrication facilities that are being built here in the United States, which is good news, uh, seem to me to be somewhat of a special case where you have a massive investment in very high technology equipment, but they tend to respond to subsidies because the payout periods have to happen in such short time because the technology changes so fast. So yeah, it's great news for Intel building a plant in Ohio. There are a couple plants under construction in Metro Phoenix, Arizona. That's all great. And that's a response in some ways to the US CHIPS initiative and others. I think that's separate from a broader move to reevaluate supply chains with hundreds of different moving parts. But I think that reevaluation is going on. I mean, I, I, Scott's right. We've talked about some of this before. This is the continuation of a trend that began, I think, at least 10 years ago, as companies have wanted to uh, shorten their supply chains, get closer to their customers, and, and insulate themselves better from uh, volatile energy and, and therefore shipping costs. The new element, which is it's not brand new, but it's reassessment of political risk. And that's most obvious in the case of Russia, where political risk has gone way up. But I think that spills over and people are reassessing the political risk of doing business in China. Uh, and both governments, both the U.S. government and the Chinese government, deny that they're doing it. But in fact, you know, they're each telling their companies they need to choose between the two. And companies, you know, the United States is not making companies leave. But companies on their own are reassessing the political risk of staying. And one by one, they're looking for alternatives. And the new buzzword is resilience, which is, I always have trouble spelling, but it, it, what it means is don't put all your eggs in one basket. So I think what you may see is not so much people leaving China en masse, but people developing supply chain alternatives. So they're not wholly dependent on a single country or a single source, and they can avoid blockages in supply chains. What that means over time, 10 years from now, will be shorter, more diverse uh, supply chains involving multiple sources of supply for each element. Well, it's interesting. You know, it seems that globalization is undergoing a major shift, and yet global trade hit a record $7.7 trillion in the first quarter of 2022. Yes, and I think the rise in commodity prices, particularly that heavily traded commodity oil, is really what explains the high numbers of trade. For well, it's good. I think it's good that trade has rebounded. That's a good thing. But I think the reason the dollar value of trade is at record highs has to do with the commodity cycle 
as much as anything else. If you look at trade as a share of output, world trade as a share of output peaked, I think, in 2007. And it's been roughly the same or lower since then. Volume is up a little bit, but not nearly as much as value. I think Scott's right. But no matter how you measure, we do not, we seem to have recovered from the COVID trough. Yes. And maybe we're heading in another one, depending on whether or not there's a recession. But right now, uh, trade continues to grow. Let's hope it continues on. Trade guys, thanks as always. Great, great discussion. And uh, hopefully the great Mexican beer crisis will end very soon. Well, we'll do our research between now and next episode. And we will do our, we'll do our best to uh, help with demand. Let me know how it goes. Thanks. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.